jump into God's Word this morning, and as, as you do, grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. To, this morning, I really want to talk about the unity that we have in Christ. Uh, the culture, uh, ideologic, uh, ideologies try to separate us, try to divide us, black, white, male, female, and try to put us in categories that... That and, and categories are good things, but the, the categories that they're aiming to put us in are from positions of oppression and oppressor. And when those kinds of separations and divisions are made, it, it's, it's problematic because the, the, the complementarity of roles is a beautiful thing. Uh, it's a thing that God ordered. And uh, we need to be thinking about that, knowing about that, and, and understanding that from a biblical context and framework. What the world desires to do is to use those separations, those unique divisions, and create more division in a negative way uh, so that we're at each other's throats and ready to, to, to deal with each other in ways that are unbiblical and ungodly. Um, the beauty of what Christ has done is something that we're going to uh, examine this morning. Uh, and as you leave here, uh, my hope would be that the fellowship that you all enjoyed, the time together that you enjoyed in the Word, the conversations that you sparked uh, would just only heighten and be amplified uh, by what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. And so it's with that, if you would do me the, the, the favor of, of standing as we read the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and following. This is God's Word and it reads this way, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he, became, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place, a place for God by the Spirit. As you're seated, you'll join me in prayer. Father God, we give you thanks and praise for your word. We're grateful for this revelation of the truth, of, a, of the unity that you enabled through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. I pray, Lord God, that as we listen to this message, as we listen and read the word, that we will, even in heart, mind, and spirit, be united both one to another and then understand more clearly our unity with you through Christ. We're grateful for that. I ask that you help me to clearly articulate what you've given me. And I pray that you help these men to hear with extreme crystal clarity because of the work of your spirit in their lives. 
We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, theologians throughout church history have found the letter to the church at Ephesus noteworthy. It was Martin Luther who kind of characterized it best when he said that this book, the book of Ephesians, is one of the best and noblest books of the New Testament. Today, men like John MacArthur and others have established their early days of ministry by walking their entire church through a study of this important book. This epistle to the church at Ephesus is really one of my favorite Pauline epistles. There are numerous reasons why followers of Christ really should enjoy the book of Ephesians. We're going through that right now. Good, good. The letter begins with a concise description of God's cosmic plan for salvation for sinful humanity. When it comes to the majesty, the vastness of God and his sovereign plan of redemption, nothing expresses that plan more clearly than the first chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Every Christian, every Christian should read and meditate on the first full chapter, really the whole book. But, but as you think about the first chapter, trying to wrap your mind around the majesty of God is absolutely amazing. Our conscious minds should be overwhelmed by the realization that God, in his sovereignty, had a plan of salvation for us before he even ordered the creation of the universe. I mean, if you, if you stop to think about that, I like to think about it in this way. God the Father knew that as he ordered creation, that Virgil Walker would be a train wreck mess, that he would absolutely be uh, an, an insane individual apart from his intervention in grace, that I would lose it, that I would sin, that I would, that I would rightly deserve death, hell, and the grave. I would deserve it all. And that before he said anything, he crafted a plan to rescue me. And, and, and that same plan was created to rescue all of us who are called upon the name of the Lord, who have called upon the name of the Lord. And once that plan was in place, he then said, let there be light. That's an amazing thought to consider. As we consider the first chapter of Ephesians, it goes on to explain the triune nature of salvation. We often think salvation as a, as a work of Christ uh, in time uh, for the purpose of living the life that we could not live, being faultless, being blameless, and dying the death that we rightly deserve uh, for our sins against the Holy God. And we absolutely should think about salvation in that way. But the first chapter of this letter opens up the fact that that this concept of salvation is not a new idea. It wasn't a decision on the part of God at the last minute to try to fix some things. But rather, salvation is a work of God the Father. It's God the Father's design in eternity past. We see this in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Salvation is a work of Christ the Son redeeming man in time. Verses 7 through 12. And it is the sealing by God the Holy Spirit confirming our future reward. Chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. Paul then begins Ephesians 2 by outlining man's condition, man's 
situation, man's dire situation in time. Consider the following. Consider it in the following ways. Chapter 1, Paul lifts back the curtain on God's cosmic plan only to move onto the scene of, of humanity's condition, of our situation, and our need for that plan of redemption in time. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, reads this way. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul writes chapter 2, we, we, we understand as a result of, of what that section opens up with of our separateness from God. Our separateness from God. Paul declares unequivocally that we are dead in sins. In fact, verse 3, Paul reveals that we are, that we, like the rest of humanity, are children of wrath. But instead of condemning all of us, all of humanity with the death that we rightly deserve for our sins against a holy God. Verse 4 opens up like the, the sunbeams through a very cloudy, rainy day when we read the words, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is a profound thought. It's one that often we may, if we're not careful, take for granted. What we deserved was hell. What we deserved was God's wrath poured out, but that's not what we received. We received the grace of God who is rich in mercy. This immense love is far more than a warm sensation running down God's proverbial spine. This love is demonstrated by God the Father in the sending of his Son. And it is offered to us by grace through faith. Not of our own efforts, but as a gift of God. And this gift of salvation restores us in right relationship both to God and to one another. With that context in mind, I want us to turn to the section that we're uh, opening up this this morning, where Paul begins with the transitional word, therefore. Therefore, after, after we've grasped and wrapped our mind around all that was written before, we have the transition, therefore. Paul moves on to describe the next stage of our comprehension in relation to the previous points made. He writes this, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. However, before we walk through the central point, I want to, for those of you who are kind of taking notes, I want to kind of lay out where I'm going here as we uh, run through this section. Uh, point one that I want to make is I, I want to make the point that Paul is making and he's challenging us. He says, remember who you were. We're going to look at that in verse 11. We're going to remember who we were, who you were. Verse 12, we're going to remember where you were. 
This is more than just about location. This really is about our distance, our separateness from God. Verse 13, 14 and following, we're going to rejoice in what God has done. We're going to rejoice in what God has done. Remember who, remember who you were, verse 11. Remember where you were, verse 12. And remember to rejoice in what God has done, verses 13 and 14. In order to grasp the change of the depth of our predicament, Paul begins verse 11 with therefore. Remember who you were. Why does Paul want us to remember who we were? Well, it's often we're easily uh, persuaded by what we're seeing and experiencing in our immediate context. It's very easy for us to forget who we were. We live in a culture who's, who's constantly telling us about, about right now and, 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 and embraces things like, so, like the social media culture. And when I'm in a room of, of uh, you know, men and women, I'm often talking about what we do in our social media platforms. Um, for the women, uh, women have a tendency to use these, these filters for their selfies, right? They've, they've got the, all this color. My wife tried this at one point. She, uh, she sent me this, this picture of her with, with these lips that were extra. And I'm going, what in the world are you doing? I, th I think she thought it was attractive. I was going, babe, that is not good. It's not a good look for you. And then, you know, I, I wondered why dinner wasn't fixed and things didn't... <laughs> Sometimes honesty can cost you, so it is what it is. But we're always trying to fix ourselves. Men do it through kind of what we do. We want to make it sound more important, right? So when I came on with, um, with uh, G3, you know, he, I was, it was director of operations, and I said, you, you need to put executive on that. You need to put, you know, some title on that. And so uh, they accommodated me and let me kind of come in at that level. We're always trying to make things look a little bit better or shinier or brighter than they actually are. Paul wants us to remember who we were, not for the mere fact of impressing other people, but to, as a result of remembering who we were, we then recognize what God has done on our behalf. Remember who you were. Now, while people in Paul's day didn't have the benefit of, or the curse rather, of social media, the human condition is no different today. Without the mirror of God's word being utilized to remind us and fellow believers of who we were, our natural proclivity to assess who we are with little judgment while simultaneously looking at others through a, a big magnifying glass is absolutely what we do. If you recall who you were, you'll be able to completely appreciate what God has done in ransoming us, in redeeming us, and returning us to a position that we actually do not deserve. And that, that position is solely based on his goodness, not ours. When we look at the world in which we live, very few individuals can deny the absolute depravity of the human condition. Most people, however, are unable to admit the depth of evil that exists in our own human hearts. Paul encourages this kind of self-reflection in this verse. One of the things that I enjoy about being around men is that we are truth tellers. Uh, we normally, at least for others, will tell, I'll tell someone the truth about their situation. They're, they're most likely will tell me the truth about my situation. 
It's in these kinds of environments that we're able to kind of take the mask off, put down the bravado and just be real men and, and really reflect on who we once were. Really reflect on our own depravity, our own sinful condition. Really look into the mirror of the word of God so that we can understand where we are and who we are. These kinds of things and times like these are critically important. Paul is continuing to remind us of who we were as sinners so that we don't sacrifice the joy of God's forgiveness. So that we don't sacrifice or gain or obtain any sense of self-righteousness. Look again at verse 2, or rather chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says, remember that you Gentiles in the flesh, known as the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is produced in the flesh by hands. Now, being known as the uncircumcision, the people of Israel, uh, by the people of Israel, this is more than just an insult. Abraham was circumcised as, the, as a sign of God's covenant people. Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 14. This is an external manifestation of one's devotion to God. Some, some uh, of the people of Israel took this covenant so seriously that they mistook circumcision for salvation. I won't go into great detail, but you remember the attack of uh, that David uh, uh, began to force upon Goliath, right, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 17. David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done to this man who, uh, who what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The idea being portrayed here is one who is unclean, one who is polluted, who's carnal, and, and significantly, one who is outside of God's covenant promise. David expresses this contempt for someone who's not a member of God's covenant people in the most explicit terms. So once again, the concept being conveyed here is more than just name calling. That is to say, this is an individual who has no relationship with God. And that's who we were. This once again goes beyond the step of, 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 of the idea of just name calling. Paul then wants us to recall where we were. Look at verse 12. Remember that, at, at, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul wishes to remind the Christians in Ephesus, particularly Gentile Christians, that they were formerly far from Christ. The beginning of the verse, you have the first portion that's separated, that we were separated mm -hmm. from Christ. And at the end of the verse, you have having no hope and without God in the world. Now these two ideas are intertwined. So what they convey is without Christ, there is no hope. And no access to God in the world. The concept of separation from God's people is actually central to the verses. You have, you, you have alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and become foreigners to the covenants of promise between these two passages. This is critical. It's, it's the idea that if you're disconnected from God, you're also disconnected from God's people. This is imperative. Again, I, I, have to call, I have to continually point back to what we do as we, as we gather on the Lord's Day on a Sunday morning. 
We're, we're gathered with the people of God. One of the reasons why it's imperative that you not, you not refrain from gathering as is the habit of some is because there's, there's something that takes place when God's people gather together. You men have felt that sense as you've gathered with one another, as you've sat at the table and broken bread. It's been awesome for me just to, just to sit and, and listen and interact and engage with each and every one of you as, as the time is, has, has presented. I, 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 you know, me coming from, from Georgia, from Atlanta, by way of Omaha to here, here's the, here's the most powerful thing about that. Because wherever I land, if I'm in a mix of the gathering of God's people, I'm with family. I'm, I'm with, with the family of God. I can sit down and break bread with those whose faces may not be familiar to me, but whom I share a oneness in our faith and through what Christ has done. And the joy that comes from that is amazing. Listen, man, it is everything that the world wants to recreate apart from God. And we have it. And as a result of that, we should have great joy as we wage war against those who would raise up their, their ideas against the knowledge of Christ. These kinds of things are incredibly important. Allow me to kind of unpack these two points. First, our isolation from God. This, 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 this section of scripture talks about how we're separated from, from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Let me, let me walk out the significance. The significance with the aspect of being separated from Christ is that Christ is integral to everything. He's, he's integral to everything. When you comprehend who Christ is, you begin to realize the gravity of our separation. Let's consider the enormity of that separation for just a moment. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet, that is Christ, and gave him as head over the church, to, over all things, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. A very familiar passage for you. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is Christ, the preeminent one, the prophesied Messiah. This is Christ, the greater prophet. The Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. This is Christ. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. This is Christ. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Apart from him, no light dawns. Apart from him, nothing holds together. Apart from him, the whole known universe collapses upon itself, folds back into the nothingness that it was before he said, let there be light. This is Christ. Earlier I mentioned that our separation was in two ways. One, our separateness from God and secondarily our separateness from God's people. 
The, the, the Jew-Gentile distinction was significant uh, during the, the, the first century as the, and it could, know, could not be more amplified than it was as these two groups worshipped. Even, even as, as, as those who were, who, who were considered uh, those who loved God, those who were, who were faithful followers of God, though not Jewish, tried to worship. Amplifying this idea even in worship. Paul speaks to the fact that Christ removed the dividing wall of hostility. You'll see that in verse 14. In verse 14. The dividing wall of hostility. In part, this is a reference to temple worship. In part, in the temple, the Jews literally had a dividing wall that separated Jews from Gentiles in their fellowship. In the temple, you had the, the court of separations. The court of separations, you had the court of the priests where only the male tribe of Levi was permitted, were permitted. You had the court of Israel where only Jewish males were permitted. You had the court of women. Any Jew could enter, but no woman could go beyond a certain point. And then five steps down from the level of the Jewish courtyards, there was a, a five-foot-high stone barrier that extended all around the temple enclosure. Then down another 14 steps to the level known as the court of the Gentiles. Now, according to Jewish historian Josephus, the wall dividing Jews and Gentiles was marked at intervals by a stone inscription stating that no foreigner was permitted to enter the Jewish synagogue enclosure upon the penalty of death. The statement read as follows, quote, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Remember who we were. Remember where we were. Again, this is separation from Christ. Verse 12 again. Remember that you at one time were separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. The point being here, men, is that if we understand who we were and where we were. When we understand what God has done, we will absolutely rejoice so let's rejoice in what God has done verse 13 but now in Christ Jesus you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ so we look at verse 13 we have the two words that are that are the light of the of the dawn that I mentioned earlier but now your condition was tragic you were condemned you your condition was over but now, if you remember earlier from verse 4 where Paul writes, but God, go back and look, but God in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And now here the good news of the gospel is that Christ has brought those who were far off, has brought them near. Verse 13, but now in Christ you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of of Christ. This is good news. At the outset I mentioned the fact that the gospel is not some new idea that God figured out after he looked and noticed that we were that, that we had abandoned our post. This was a promise through scripture, Acts chapter 2 verse 39. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who were far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. Verse 13 says that you were brought near. But how were you brought near? How were you brought near? According to our text, we've been brought near by the blood 
of Christ. His sacrifice on the cross brought us reconciliation both with God the Father and listen men and with one another. As I mentioned, this separation was not an imaginary separation. It was real. Our separation from God was when we were in our most dire condition. And how was it abolished? It was abolished by the blood of Christ. It was not abolished by the legislation or government entity. It was not abolished by a march on the streets. It was not abolished by a rally or a riot. It was not abolished by a Supreme Court decision or a presidential proclamation. Jesus Christ suffered a brutal death to redeem us, to save us. And in that, men, we rejoice. Consider verses 14 through 16, which read this way. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There cannot be a more clear uniting of who we are than in the body of Christ, creating one new man out of two. As I travel around, I hear, uh, you guys know with, with um, just thinking, I deal a lot with issues of social justice, right? And I'm hearing people call for racial reconciliation. Um, this is, in, in my estimation, this is farcical. It's a farcical idea. For, to begin with, if we're talking about biblical language, as I mentioned last night, there's only one human race. But if we were to grant them the idea that there were two separate races of people, my question is always this. Who's going to be the race representative for, for my people, the blacks? Who's going to be the race representative for the whites? And where are they going to go and work out these issues? And then how are they going to get the message back to all of us that everything is now fixed? Yeah, it's, it's laughable. It's foolish. It's a misnomer. Anytime you hear racial reconciliation, your antenna should go up. And you should appeal back to this text of scripture that tells us we've been reconciled in the body and blood of Christ. There's only one reconciliation that takes care and covers it all. And that is this reconciliation through Christ and the blood of his cross. And I emphasize that point so that as we leave here and we are caught up in our various areas and we begin to hear the kind of language that, that has the natural tendency to divide us, men, we appeal back to what scripture says and know that on the Lord's day as we gather, we're gathered with the full family of God at our local church. As we follow the next the text in verses 17 and 18, we find the outcome intended by God the Father. Let's begin reading in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. John Calvin in his commentary said the following. He said this, quote, All that Christ has done towards effecting a reconciliation would have been of no service if the gospel had not proclaimed it. And therefore... The fruit of this peace has now been offered both to Jews and to Gentiles. Hence it follows to say Gentiles as well as Jews was the design of our Savior's coming. 
as the preaching of the gospel which addressed indiscriminately to both make abundantly manifest, end quote. How, how do we execute this, this reconciliation? How do, how do we from this room go into our spaces and places and, and impact the rest of culture and, and seeing them reconciled to God and to man? You men know it is the proclamation of the gospel. There's no other magic bullet. There's no other, other reconciliation course. There's no other racial reconciliation uh, uh, opportunity. It's through the proclamation of the gospel. The other night I was in, in Omaha, Nebraska and had an opportunity to kind of walk people through. You ask an individual who's not well-churched, uh, where biblical illiteracy abounds, you ask them what the gospel is, you will get a variety of different answers. Well, the gospel is Jesus. Wow. And? Well, well the, go the gospel's the good news. Well, yeah, yeah that, what, what's that good news? Well, the gospel is, you know, uh, I, I go to church, okay, let's pump the brakes on that. Well, the gospel is, yeah, I, I promise you, you'll get all kinds of answers. So it was while I was there, I wanted to make sure that everyone in that room understood what the gospel is. So I said, listen, the gospel is simple. It is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. The gospel is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. The gospel, the gospel is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness, for the forgiveness of sins. I, I, I told the group there, as you leave this place, there is no other message that has the weight, the eternal weight and magnitude of the proclamation of that good news, that good news being the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. You men are well-churched. You men know what the gospel is. But I was in that place ensuring that those who were in that room did not leave without repeating that with me. So that by the time we left that place, I had probably said that phrase more than 15 to 20 different times. So that no one left there mistaken any other message than the true message of the gospel. Why is that important? It's because it's the only message that saves. It's the only message that reconciles us to God and to one another. It is absolutely what the world craves. Unfortunately, as we talk about the world, like Aaron, who provided Israel with a golden calf, far too many in outside and inside the church are adopting a substitute religion, believing that they hold the real thing. However, as opposed to going through that, I want to focus on the finished work of Christ. Look at verses 19 through 22. They read this way. Having known and understood all that came before it, Paul writes this, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, Listen, men, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
even as all of the, the previous section is true, we're still being built in. There's still sanctifying work to do, even amongst the brothers, so that we grow, grow into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If this is you and you are in Christ, this is absolutely true of you. If you've clung to the cross of Christ, you indeed have been reconciled by the finished work of Jesus Christ. But if you are here, maybe you're a guest or a friend, and you have not experienced reconciliation with God through the repentance of your sin and placing your full faith in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you not to leave this place having done so. I would encourage you to having heard the message of the gospel, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, that this would be the point in time at which you would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That God the Father in his sovereignty would love us enough to craft a plan prior to saying let there be light to ransom and redeem you knowing that each and every one of us would, would absolutely mess things up that he would do so by sending his son to live a perfect life that we could not live for 30 seconds much less 33 years and to die a death that we rightly deserve the wrath of God poured out on us. We rightly deserve. God would be fully justified, fully justified and glorified in sending each and every one of us rebel sinners to hell for eternity. Fully justified in doing so. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love that he has for us, send his son to die on a cross taking upon him the punishment we rightly deserve so that those of us who by faith and repentance would place our faith in him would inherit eternal life. It is a gift upon gifts. There's no greater gift that can be given. I would encourage you, if you've never bowed the knee to Christ, that you would do so today, that you would seek out these elders, you would talk to these men and repent and place your full faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here and you've done that, man, it is, this is a day of rejoicing. And this is, this is, this is drink this in, right? Uh, how, how often do you get a chance to, to carve out some time to get away and to, in whatever menial or great ways, to engage one another in fellowship, in song, in prayer, in the hearing and preaching of the word of God? How often do you get an opportunity to, to, to enjoy that? Tomorrow on the Lord's Day, there should be an extra pep in your step. There should be an extra, there should be an extra measure of excitement for you to, to gather with the full family of God on the Lord's Day at your local church, understanding what you now have taken the time to carve out, to reflect upon and understand. It is my prayer that the time that I've had with you has been an encouragement, uh, has been something that's been edifying, something that you'll take with you, not my words, but the words of God that are, have the power to destroy strongholds and transform human hearts. It's with that I close with a word of prayer. Father God, we give you thanks and praise for who you are, for what you've done, for all that we've come to grow in in the last day and a half. And, and I'm grateful for my time with these men. I pray that you bless them in the days to come, that they enjoy the sweet fellowship that they have here and, and have a greater appreciation of what the elders here engage in in ministry there at the, at the local church.
pray that you bless those men as they lead. I pray that even they would be refreshed by their time here, uh, that they would go back better husbands, better leaders, better elders, better men of God as a result. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for the word.